Good morning, church. Well, good to see you this morning. Glad to have you with us. Also, we have some who are joining us live stream. We're always glad to have you with us as well. And we have some guests this morning. We'd like to say to our guests, welcome home. It's good to have you here with us. Hey, all month long, we've been focusing on this sermon series, Knit. Now, that's taken from Psalm 139, where David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Last Sunday was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, but we've had a pro-life emphasis all month long. So on the first Sunday, we talked about this whole idea of the sanctity of human life. What does that mean? What's it based on? Of course, it's based upon our being created in the image of God, all kinds of implications for that. In our second message, we looked at how abortion hurts women and that there is forgiveness and healing available. And then last Sunday, we interviewed Bonnie Martinelli. She's the executive director of the local CareNet Pregnancy Center. And we heard a testimony from Amy Post, who is a post-abortive woman. And she gave her testimony about surrendering the secret, this eight-week Bible study uh, for women who've had abortions through which there can be forgiveness and healing. So today, as we wrap up this emphasis and this sermon series on knit, I want to say three things about life. We're kind of going to talk about three different kinds of life. I want to say three things about life this morning. And the first thing we want to say is that uh, human life begins at conception. Human life begins at conception. And nobody who believes and accepts the fact that the life in the womb is an actual living human being can rationally defend the legalization of abortion. And it used to be that the pro-choice group would say, well, when life begins is a religious question. It cannot be answered scientifically, but you don't hear that argument too much anymore because since 1973, Roe v. Wade, the science has progressed tremendously over the last few decades. So first of all, just let me say, as far as the biblical data is concerned, just say something very simple, that the Holy Spirit has chosen to use the same word for a baby in the womb as a baby outside of the womb. Same word. Uh, we get Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Speaking of John the Baptist and Elizabeth, his mother's womb, uh, Luke records the baby leaped in her womb. That's a preborn child, John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 2, verse 12, this referring to Jesus who's been born, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. In the original language, the word there for baby in both verses is brephos, brephos, for a preborn child or a child that's been born. Uh, the second thing I want to say about this has to do with the science, the, the science of the matter. And I know this is not Scripture, but all truth is God's truth. And so I want to read you some quotes here from scientific-type people. And so I, I do have to do some reading for you this morning, so bear with me as we read through this. But I think it'll be worthwhile. I don't expect anybody to remember the details here, but just want to leave an impression. If you want any of this information, on the Connect card, the little blue card in the chairs in front of you, you can request the manuscript from today. I'll be happy to email you that if you want it, if you want the details. Dr. Alfred Bongiani, professor of obstetrics at the University of Pennsylvania, writes, quote, I have learned from my earliest medical education that human life begins at the time of conception. Human life is present throughout this entire sequence from conception to adulthood. Any interruption at any point throughout this time constitutes a termination of human life. I'm no more prepared to say that these early stages represent an incomplete human being than I would be to say that the child prior to the dramatic effects of puberty is not a human being. This is human life at every stage, end quote. Dr. Jerome Lejeune, 
genetics professor at the University of Descartes in Paris, writes, quote, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. This is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. Each individual has a beginning at conception, end quote. And then Professor Michelin Matthews Roth of Harvard University Medical School writes, quote, it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception, end quote. So the moment of each person's creation is the moment of his conception. Before that moment, the individual with her unique DNA and 46 chromosomes did not exist. From that moment, she does exist. The award-winning secular book titled From Conception to Birth documents the child's beginning at conception and her movement towards birth. Now, here's some of the info. From the instant of fertilization, that first single cell contains the entire genetic blueprint in all of its complexity. This accounts for every detail of human development, including the child's sex, hair and eye color, height and skin tone. Take that single cell of the just-conceived zygote, put it next to a chimpanzee cell, and a geneticist could easily identify the human. Its humanity is already strikingly apparent. The cells of the new individual divide and multiply rapidly, resulting in phenomenal growth. There's growth because there's life. Long before a woman knows she's pregnant, there is within her a living, growing human being. Between five and nine days after conception, the new person burrows into the womb's wall for safety and nourishment. Already, his or her sex can be determined by scientific means. By 14 days, the child produces a hormone that suppresses the mother's menstrual period. It will be two more weeks before clearly human features are discernible. Still, she is a full-fledged member of the human race. At conception, the unborn doesn't appear human to us who are used to judging humanity by appearance. Nevertheless, in the objective scientific sense, she is every bit as human as any older child or adult. She looks like a human being ought to look at her stage of development. At 18 days after conception, the heart is forming and the eyes start to develop. By 21 days, the heart is pumping blood throughout the body. By 28 days, the unborn has budding arms and legs. By 30 days, she has a brain and is multiplied in size 10,000 times. By 35 days, her mouth, ears, and nose are taking shape. And at 40 days, the preborn child's brain waves can be recorded. And her heartbeat, which began three weeks earlier, can already be detected by an ultrasonic stethoscope. By 42 days, her skeleton is formed and her brain is controlling the movement of muscles and organs. Now, Scott Klusendorf says, the answer to the question, what is it, trumps all other considerations. He points out that there are only four differences between a preborn and a newborn. They can be remembered through the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. S stands for size. Does how big you are determine who you are? L stands for level of development. Are 21-year-olds more human than 10-year-olds since they're smarter and stronger? E stands for environment. Does being inside a house make you more or less human than being outside of a house? Does being located in her mother's body rather than outside make a child less human? And D stands for degree of dependency. 
Does dependence upon another determine who you are? Is someone with Alzheimer's or a kidney dialysis less of a person because they are dependent? A three-month-old is much smaller than a 10-year-old, far less developed, and just as incapable of taking care of herself as a unborn. The question is not how old or big, smart, or inconvenient the unborn are, but who they are. And many times, older children are less convenient and more expensive than preborns are. And that goes for spouses as well. So if that is true, so if what we have said is true, if human life begins at conception, it has implications also for the birth control that is used. If the birth control that is used prevents a fertilized egg from taking root in the wall of the womb, then that is a chemical abortive agent. So something to think about. All right, so we're going to say three things today about life. Number one, human life begins at conception. Number two, new life or spiritual life begins at baptism. So what happens is we're physically born. All of us here in this room are grateful that our mothers chose to give us life. We were physically born. We are wrapped in the cocoon of God's grace until we reach what's called the age of accountability. Now that is the age at which we realize that there is a God, our creator God, to whom we owe the obligation of love and trust and obedience. Obedience. He's our creator. Obedience to his will and his law. It's not long after that age that we also realize we have not kept his will. We have not kept his law. We have broken his law. And that has resulted in separation from our fellowship with God. Separation is the definition of death. So we experience spiritual death. So not only do we need to be born physically, we come to a point where we need to be born again, that is spiritual birth, so we can have new life. Now, this age of accountability seems to be what Paul is referring to in Romans 7, 9, where he writes, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. That is, when he reached the age of accountability and became aware of God and God's law and that he had broken God's law, then he experienced spiritual death. So, in order to have new life spiritually and be born again, there are four steps. Number one is faith. Right? We must believe and trust that Jesus died on the cross, paying the full penalty for our sin, past, present, and future. That he died, substitutionary death, and that he rose from the dead. Because therein lies the twofold cure for our sin. Sin makes us guilty, and sin corrupts us, makes us sick. So, the death of Jesus pays the price and releases us from the guilt of sin. The resurrection of Jesus gives us resurrection power, also known as the Holy Spirit, to indwell us, regenerates our hearts, gives us the power to live for God. It's the twofold cure for the twofold curse of sin in our life. So that's the gospel. And we believe that and we trust that. Number two is to repent. Now, repent is when we have a, a change of attitude towards sin. Sin is what caused us to die spiritually, sin is what put Jesus on the cross. So we can't love God and love our sin at the same time. We've got to hate sin. It's repentance, change of attitude. Thirdly, the Bible says, confess Jesus is Lord. Confess Jesus is Lord. If we're embarrassed or ashamed about Jesus, well, we've got to go back to steps one and two, faith and repentance. So confess Jesus is Lord. He'll confess us before his Father. The fourth step is baptism. Now, baptizo, baptism is an immersion in water, of someone who believes and repents and confesses. Someone who's old enough to do that. Someone who's reached the age of accountability. Believe, repent, confess, and then been baptized. It's at that point, I said, new life 
begins at baptism. That's when God, that is the, the occasion of salvation, when God applies the benefits of the cross, the gospel, to an individual. Now, there are 12 passages in the New Testament, primary passages that speak to the purpose and the design of baptism. They all connect baptism to salvation. Let me just put that biblical data before you. Take me a couple of minutes here to read these passages, and they'll be on the screens up here. Again, just want to leave an impression. Note the connection here of baptism in these verses to salvation. Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of is not only by the authority of, it is also into the possession of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. John 3, 5. This is Jesus. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. You must be born again. Acts 2.38, first gospel sermon. At the conclusion, here's the invitation by the Apostle Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 22.16, this is Ananias to Saul. He says, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Romans 6.3, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what? A new life. 1 Corinthians 12.13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's the church, the body of Christ. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Ephesians 5, 25. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Colossians 2, 12 having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. That is, when you're baptized, you understand God is doing a work on you and in you, applying the benefits of salvation. Titus 3.5, God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And 1 Peter 3.21, it's the 12th one. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience. Baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I just camped out on those 12 verses, the primary verses in the New Testament that teach the design and purpose of baptism, not because of the four steps, it's the most important. It's not. If I was to rank them in order of importance, I'd put faith first. But nevertheless, baptism is the one that's controversial in the religious world today, evangelicalism separates baptism from having anything to do with salvation. But of these 12 passages in his book on baptism, Jack Cottrell, theologian, does a deep dive into them, and he concludes as follows. What is remarkable is not only the fact that these 12 primary baptism passages do present baptism as the time God has appointed for initially bestowing salvation upon believing, repentant sinners but also the fact that they are unanimous in doing so. 
This is not some obscure inference that must be laboriously forced from the fringes of a few texts, but is the central theme of them all. And at the same time, no other meaning emerges to serve as even a secondary role, much less to challenge the one main idea that baptism is for salvation. Now, Satan hates life. He he hates human life, and he hates spiritual life. In fact, Jesus said, John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And Satan strives to prevent human babies from being born in one way by using jargon, language to disguise the fact that what is in the womb is actually a human living being. Likewise, when it comes to spiritual rebirth, Satan tries to prevent people from being born again by using theological jargon to confuse and obfuscate the fact that baptism is for the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that's when a person is born again. But make no mistake, we must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. Have you? If you haven't, just let me know after church today. We will chip off the ice from somebody's pool and take care of that. But most of you have, and I understand that. Most of you have. So what are we saying? Three things about life. Number one, that the human life begins at conception. Number two, spiritual life or new life begins at baptism, preceded by faith, confession, and repentance. Thirdly, abundant life. And abundant life begins at worship. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Other translations like the New Living Translation will moderate this and say um, a rich, that they may have a rich and satisfying life. Okay, well, Jesus, all right. I believe the gospel and I repented of my sin. I've confessed Jesus as Lord. I've been baptized. Now I have an abundant, rich, and satisfying life. My question to you today is, are you feeling it? Are you feeling that abundant life? You know, what do you mean by rich and satisfying? Not necessarily in material terms, but a life full of joy and love, peace. I don't always feel it. You ever wonder, you know, other people seem to be having the abundant life? Me, not so much. What's wrong with me? Don't answer this out loud, but I just, let's pause. I want you to think to yourself in your own mind, am I experiencing the abundant life, love and joy? And if not, why not? And at the risk of oversimplifying that, I don't want to oversimplify this, but at least a part of it begins with worship. Now, you may be thinking, really, worship? Is that the big reveal here, is worship? You mean like we sang the two songs, the worship songs before the sermon, and we'll sing a couple of more after the sermon? That's, that's our worship? Well, that's part of it, but you know that worship is much bigger than that. The word worship literally means to ascribe worth to. Ascribe, we are, when we worship, we're ascribing worth to God. What is it in our lives that has the most worth. Who is it? Most value and most worth in our lives. Is it God? Are we like, that's kind of the knee-jerk answer. Yeah, of course it's God, but is it? How much time, energy, effort are we putting into 
experiencing the presence of God, practicing the presence of God, entering into it, celebrating it, ascribing worth to God's presence in our life. So we just finished 2019, the year 2019. There were some celebrities that passed away. I'm going to show you 10 pictures, one by one, of celebrities who passed away. Here's, our, here's a little contest this morning. Let's see if we can uh, just call out the name if you recognize the person. There's at least one stumper in here. But all right, got Doris Day passed away. She's 93 years old. Here's the next one. I think it's going to be a little more challenging. At least maybe you can tell me the character that he played in some very successful movies. Yeah, he's Chewbacca. This was this character. He played Chewbacca in the Star Wars movies. Anybody? We have any? So we got a we got a nerd out there who actually knows the name of the actor is Peter Mayhew. Seven foot three inches tall. Played Chewbacca. It was 74 years old. All right, the next one. And this one was tough for some as well. Anybody remember the Mod Squad? Yeah, Peggy Lipton from the Mod Squad. She was 72. Next one from the world of sports. Bart Starr. Bart Starr, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. He was 85. Next one from theater. Carol Channing. Hello, Dolly. She was 97. Next one, TV. Tim Conway was 85. Uh, from politics and business. Anybody remember the election in 1992? Ross Perot, billionaire, ran for president. Ross Perot. This one was harder for me, but Luke Perry, 90210, Luke Perry. He was, he was 52. All right, and from business, Lee Iacocca. You're doing good out there, Sally. Lee Iacocca was 94. <laughs> and Valerie Harper, Rhoda. And she was 80. All right, so all of these folks uh, achieved a degree of celebrity, obviously, of success, of really of financial wealth, most of them, financial wealth. And my question is for us to think about this morning, how important was all of that toward the end of their life and now, now that they've passed away? How important was the celebrity, the success, the money, now, how, how happy were they? How joyful were they in their life? Did they experience the abundant life, rich and satisfying? I don't know. I didn't research any of those lives. Just asking the question, of this I'm fairly confident, toward the end of their lives and now, the success, the fame, the celebrity, the money, not that important. When you think about sin, why do we? sin. I mean, why, why would a woman commit a, an abortion, for instance? Maybe, well, here comes something I hadn't planned, didn't want it. It's going to take away from my joy or the life that I want to live. What about promiscuous sex? What about pornography? What about turning to alcohol or drugs? What about going on shopping sprees? Why do we, why do, we do this? What about spending hours and hours binge-watching on TV or playing video games? What causes us to do these things? Isn't it because there's a hole in our hearts? There's an ache that we are broken and many times we are suffering and we are trying to medicate that in these different ways. And we know that God says, well, if you obey me and you follow this lifestyle, it's going to result in the abundant life, but we don't really trust God. We think if we do that, we're going to miss out on something and I know better. I know better. You're trying to keep me from the good life or the happy life and I got to get rid of him and I got to acquire her. And 
And so I say, worship. What is the one thing or really the one person that cannot be taken away from us ever in this life or in death? You think of Job. Remember the story of Job in the Old Testament. Successful, rich, the narrator of his story. And I believe it's historical. And I say story, I don't mean it's fictional. The narrator in the first chapter of his story says Job was blameless. He was righteous. He feared God. God says in the, in the opening, this is, this is nobody else like Job. And thus enters the accuser. He says, well, of course, you've made him rich and successful. You've given him everything. You take away his stuff. He's going to curse you to your face. And God knew better. But nevertheless, God said, all right, he's in your hands. And thus begins the mystery of the suffering of this good man, Job. And he experiences natural disasters, acts of God, terrorist attacks, loses all of his children in death, loses all of his money, eventually loses his health, tears his clothes, shaves his head, sits down on an ash heap, which we would expect. I mean, these are the cultural expressions of grief and bereavement in that day. But what happens next, we would not have expected. In fact, it's unprecedented in the Bible up until that time, until Job. In Luke 1, in Job 1.20, rather, Job 1.20, he fell to the ground in worship. He fell to the ground in worship. And this attitude of worship is what determines what happens next for Job, both good and bad. It may be the very thing that caused God to brag about Job in the first place. This is a man who fears God, who loves God, not because of his stuff, but just because of God. And Job said in verse 21, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And for the rest of the book of Job, we have Job asking questions, but hanging on to God. He's simply not going to leave the dance floor without God. And at the end, God shows up. No answers. He doesn't give Job any answers. Do we get our, we don't get all the answers. We just get God. God showed up and Job had God. And that's all he needed to worship and have life. The abundant, rich, full, and satisfying life. It always comes back to God. That's what I'm saying when I'm talking about worship. I don't know this. I'm learning this. I'll, let's spend the rest of our lives learning how to scratch that itch with God. How to move into the presence of God. Pray without ceasing. That's practicing the presence of God. Ascribing worth to God. The one person who can never be taken away from us in life or in death, he is life. He is abundant life. And so our Father in heaven this morning, we remember to thank you that we are alive, that we have physical life. We thank you for our mothers who gave us the life. We thank you and praise you that we have been born again, born of the water and the Spirit. Our sins have been forgiven and washed away, and your Spirit, God, indwells us. Talk about presence. And we thank you and praise you for the abundant life. Every one of us is living right now without adding anything to our lives or taking anything away. We have the joy, the love, and the peace that comes from your presence. In Jesus' name.